does man have free will? Well, this one is a toughie, isn't it? It's probably the most contentious issue among Bible-believing Christians of the last 500 years, I reckon. One that genuine believers on both sides have disagreed on. Um, that said, it's not a gospel matter, is it? It's not a matter of first importance in one way, because there are Christians on both sides who have looked at the word and have come to different conclusions. Having said that, it is a question that can be distorted so much that it does become a matter of first importance. There have been systems, indeed there are still some in place, that produce results that are incompatible with the rest of the truth as revealed in the Bible. So you get some systems, uh, one extreme, that make us nothing more than robots or actors simply reading out a script that is already written for us. Not responsible for our actions. And in fact, if anyone is responsible, it's the author of the script. So God is to blame for our sin. Well, that can't be right, can it? At the other extreme are systems that make man responsible for everything. God has no say in human actions. Uh, God ultimately then gets no glory for any of the glorious things that he's done. And mankind gets the glory because mankind is making the decisions. Well, that can't be right either. So this evening, we're going to try to avoid those two extremes. We're going to take a brief tour of history. Because this is not, we're not the first people to ask this question uh, as we uh, do this evening. We're going to glean stuff from the past. We're going to take a brief tour of theology, partly just to get used to the terms that are used as we describe uh, these things. And then we're going to see what the Bible says uh, about all three, uh, about these issues by looking at three case studies. And then finally, we're going to bring it all together. So not much to do this evening, it'll be fine. So, firstly, a bit of history. Now, these guys, uh, I should say, uh, my, son did, my son Calvin did tell me if I do say Calvin, I'm not referring to my son Calvin. It's John Calvin that generally I'll be referring to in this talk. So I did say that I would mention that. This is John Calvin there and uh, Jacob or Jacob Arminius. And uh, the terms that we have, uh, the, the sort of way that this argument and, and debate has been termed is normally between these two. In fact, the terms that we normally have for these discussions are named after Calvin, Calvinism, and Arminius, Arminianism. We'll come to what those mean a bit, bit later on. But I want to say it's a bit unfair, really, because actually it wasn't just Calvin versus Arminius. Actually, all the reformers of Calvin's day agreed on this issue. It was Luther, for example, not Calvin, who wrote The Bondage of the Will, the idea that God uh, is in control. Arminius, though, broke away from Calvin's stream of theology. Um, so that's what he's contrasted to. Uh, so bizarrely, it means that we understand this debate as Calvinism versus Arminianism. But Calvinism as such didn't really exist as we understand it until Arminius broke away from it. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's only because he broke away that we have something that we now call Calvinism, which is in this discussion. If he'd broken away from Luther... It would have been the five points of Lutheranism, if you see my point. He just broke away from Calvin. And Calvin would never have really understood what we're talking about this evening as Calvinism, since actually every reformer agreed with him on this point. It would be weird that this is now the bit that we single out uh, about Calvin. It's also not fair to sort of get it as a battle between these two, because if you notice with the dates, they weren't contemporaries. Arminius was only five when Calvin died. And his debates were not with John Calvin, but with his successors. And again, there's some debate as to whether they represented John Calvin's actual theology or whether it was their own version of it. 
And it's also not fair because actually it's a much older question, even than the 1500s. Actually, the first time it really came to the fore was with, was with these two men, Augustine and Pelagius. And this is when the battle lines, if you like, were first drawn. Now, Augustine, he was probably the church's, he probably is still the church's most influential uh, theologian in the history of the whole church after Paul and the other apostles. He was a Christian from North Africa, sort of modern day Tunisia, that sort of area. And he wrote classics that are still studied in theology to this day. Uh, the City of God, his book on the Trinity, his autobiography called The Confessions. And he is by far and away the most quoted person by the reformers all those years later. So in Calvin's famous book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, he quotes from Augustine nearly 800 times. That's eight times as many quotes as he quotes from anybody else. So really he's taken most of his theology, or an awful lot of it, from Augustine. Actually, Augustine said it first and Calvin picked up on it later. And amongst all the other things that Augustine did, he first clarified the, the, clarified the church's position on free will. And his view is officially the view of the Reformed denominations, as well as officially the Roman Catholic Church. Though in practice they've actually abandoned that and actually censored groups for, for teaching it. But not everybody was happen, happy with Augustine's understanding of uh, free will. Uh, a British monk, we don't get many sort of early church fathers that are British, unfortunately, Pelagius was one of them. Um, he, he started to write against him. Now, he moved out of Britain, he lived all across Europe and the Middle East. But he's where we get the term Pelagianism from. And he argued on the free will side. Again, we'll come to that in the theology section. But he was condemned as a heretic in uh, 418. But there were still many sympathetic to his teachings. So he actually went to live in Egypt for the last year of his life, where they welcomed him. And Arminianism was taught, uh, sorry, get that right. Uh, Pelagianism was taught in Egypt and was very popular apparently in Britain as well. Those are the two sort of places where it really took hold. So it existed long before uh, Calvin and Arminius. But it's also unfair to give it all to them because the debate didn't stop there either. Actually, you go on to other figures who contrasted at the time, so Whitfield and Wesley. They were both great men, but they disagreed on this subject. Wesley was on the side of uh, free will and came up with his own version of Arminius's doctrines. Whitfield was on the side of God's sovereignty. And that led to some interesting exchanges between the two of them over the years. But giving you this background should make you realise that this is a difficult topic. But it should also remind us that it's a gracious, one in which we should be gracious too. Wesley, for example, was certainly... Uh, a great Christian uh, man. And both these men went on to do amazing things for God, despite their differences. So we're going to come to this, but do please remember this is an area where we need a lot of grace with people who uh, disagree. But we come now to uh, theology. And I'm going to give you a few terms to help you understand a bit about what we're talking about. And you'll see how they link with the names of those men uh, that we've just talked about. So the first word is Pelagianism. These are big words that end in ism. Uh, lots of these rather than big words that end in shun. I did want to write a sequel, big words that end in ism are the cause of every schism. Uh, but uh, <laughs> Pelagianism, um, the idea in Pelagianism, what Pelagius taught, uh, was that actually human beings are neutral. We're not good or bad. And what we really need is guidance. That's why I put a compass on there that helps you know where to go. 
So the gospel really is the idea of giving guidance to people, showing them how to live and showing them how to choose Christ. Those who are saved are the ones who believe, but basically you're free to decide whether you believe or not. We're neutral to start with and we can either go one way or the other. Now this, as I say, was condemned by the church, but they came up with their a sort of watered down version, which is called semi-Pelagianism. And there is the idea that we're not neutral, but we're sick and we need help. Um, so the gospel is that God can help you to believe. You're sort of some of the way there, but you need a bit of a, a hand to get there. Um, so God can help you believe and choose Christ. And again, all who believe are saved, but God gives you the extra grace that you need if you like to be saved. And uh, although this was condemned, this is normally the position of the, the Roman Catholic uh, Church now, even though at the time it was uh, put down. But that needed a little bit extra. You're not uh, neutral, but you are sick. What Calvin and Augustine and others taught uh, was that we're dead. That's our problem. Not that we're sick or that we're neutral, but we're dead. That's why we've got the gravestone. And what we need is resurrection. So the gospel then in this system is that God can raise us to new life with Christ so that we can choose him. Those who are saved are whomever God wills and grants faith to. But it also then means that all who believe are saved. So God grants you the faith, but all who believe are saved. Then you get another ism, hyper-Calvinism. I always think this is a really strange term because it means you're more Calvin than Calvin. How that's possible, I'm not really sure. But it's sort of like the tombstone, but a bit further down. You're more, more than one foot in the grave, really. Um, similar problem, we're dead and we need resurrection. Uh, similar answer, the gospel is, uh, is that God can raise us to new life with Christ so that we can choose him. But those who are saved, well, it's whomever God wills, but don't tell people. Because uh, really, you want to make sure that God has chosen them before you tell them the gospel. Uh, so, you know, don't, don't go out telling people about Jesus and how he can save them. Don't say whosoever will. Actually, only if God wants to save people, he can make them walk through the door. So don't tell people. Actually, God is so in control that actually almost takes us out of the equation altogether. So it's taking it that one step further where we don't really need to respond almost. We need to wait until we've already responded before we can go in. The interesting thing is, of course, that that means they do no evangelism. And these groups come and they go very quickly uh, because they don't grow. They don't see people saved. So that's another ism. Only, only two more to go. Classic Arminianism. So along comes Arminius. And he says, well, this is what Arminius taught. He taught we, we were dead. That's why we've got the uh, gravestone. But when Jesus died and rose, he actually restored our free will. He restored our ability uh, to choose. So that now with just a bit of help from God, uh, we can believe. Um, so he sort of taught it was sort of two stages. The gospel is that you can choose Jesus. You're now able to. God has restored you to, to factory settings, if you like. And those who are saved are those whom God foreknew, that God sort of looked through history, saw who would choose him, and he chose them. That was Arminius's language. So he put those two together. So he agreed, in a way, that we are dead. But he said, actually, now we've been made alive again. Popular Arminianism, though, what you often get, get taught nowadays 
is very similar to Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism. Uh, there's no notion of the fall. The gospel is choose Jesus and those who are saved are all who believe. It goes back to that idea that we're either completely neutral uh, or that we just need a bit of a, a hand to believe. So that's often what is taught, even though that's not what Arminius taught. That's what many people sort of teach in his name. So we find people in all those different camps. But there is a harder term that we've actually passed over that doesn't end in ism. And actually, I got past a blue slip. I got past a blue slip that asked this very question. It says, what does free will mean? There you go. Thanks, Lewis. That's the question we're going to look at now. What does free will mean? Because we've been sort of putting this term around. What do we actually mean by it? Well, it's harder than you think. Because with most phrases that we've been looking at, if you think of those big Bible questions, we've been looking in the Bible. And we look at what they mean. The problem is that the phrase free will never appears in the Bible. There's no biblical definition of free will in a way because the Bible doesn't talk about it. It talks about things like predestination and foreknowing and all those things, but it doesn't talk about free will. So there are different ways to look at it. Mostly what people mean by it when they say free will is they say, I determine my own actions independently. I determine my own actions independently. And that's generally what people tend to mean by free will. But when you chat to philosophers and even non-Christian philosophers, very few people actually argue that. The reason is because our wills are all influenced by things. And our wills are also constrained by things. They're sort of held in shape or, or restricted by things. So, think, I haven't had my tea yet, right? What am I going to have for tea? What, what should I choose? The yeah, language of free will. Well, there's the negative to think about. Well, should I have mushrooms? Well, I hate mushrooms. Something in my DNA, I've never liked mushrooms. I sort of feel like it's eating dead things and sort of putting slime in you. Oh, don't like it. And there's something in me that doesn't like it. There's, I can't think of an incident or anything like that. There's just something in my DNA that doesn't like mushrooms. So my choice is restricted by, or influenced by, my hate of mushrooms. What about ratatouille? Well, actually, I was sick once when I had ratatouille, when I was about 10. And even the thought of ratatouille makes me sick. I don't know if you've got foods like that, that when you've been sick, when you've had them, just can't possibly go near them. So my past experiences, however involuntary, have a part to play in my decision, don't they? In my will, what I want. What if I have dog for tea? Can I eat a dog? Well, in some cultures, that's acceptable, isn't it? Not in our culture. So actually, within my choice, within my will, with what I want, my culture actually has a part to play. That actually influences my will, what I want. It might be if I was in Korea or other places where they don't, I might think that's a brilliant choice. What about caviar? Well, I can't afford caviar. Uh, my resources have a part to play, don't they? Even if I could will as much to have caviar, if I can't afford it, I can't have it. But what about homemade consomme? Can't make it. <laughs> my incapacity has a part to play, doesn't it? If I can't physically make, you know, I can't do it, even if I want it. Or what about haggis? I like haggis. Caroline doesn't like haggis. So if I'm having tea with Caroline, actually my wife as a part to play uh, in my decisions, in my uh, will and what I want. 
And then think about things that influence us sort of positively. There's things like advertising. Why do we buy one brand of food rather than another? Often they don't taste much very different, do they? But we have advertising that is influencing our wills. So actually, even some, a basic decision like what we have for tea, there's all sorts of factors that are playing with our will. In very few decisions can it be argued that we act entirely independently without our wills being influenced or constrained in some way. And in the end, um, uh, our actions, we can't really determine our actions without reference to God. We haven't even started to talk about how God fits into that picture, have we? That's just things that are in our environment, things that are in our lives. But we'll see in a few moments, if that's what we think about free, free will, then that's not what we have by biblical data. But then again, as we see, even our culture doesn't say that we have uh, those things. So what definition of will sort of fits? I'm not going to use the term free will because the Bible really doesn't use it. But what does it mean that we have a will, if you like? Well, this is what it means. It means I do what I want to do. Okay? I do what I want to do. I always act according to my will. But is that will completely free? No. Our will is in bondage, as Martin Luther put it. For example, it's incapable of doing good by itself. It is restrained by God's will. And there is a sense in which we cannot act outside of God's will. And yet... God never does violence to our wills. He never forces us to do anything. We do what he ultimately wants, but we do those things voluntarily. We'll keep explaining this as we go through. But all the way through, I'm always doing what I want to do. So many who've looked at this topic have tried to make the distinction between something called necessity, what must be done, and compulsion. Necessity is the idea that we have to do God's will because he's in control. Compulsion is the idea that we're forced to do God's will. See the difference? One is that we have to do God's will by necessity. The other one is that we're compelled, we're forced to do God's will. We do God's will by necessity but not by compulsion. Let me give you an example. Okay. Uh, let me ask my boys. Boys, what's your favourite restaurant? Where'd you like to go to eat? Should I tell you? If I said to my boys, uh, right, after the, we're not doing this, boys. Just <laughs> if I said after this, we're going to McDonald's. Oh, yeah. Oh, that'd be great, wouldn't it? Who's making the decision? I am. They have to come. I call the shots. But I never have to force them to go to McDonald's. I've never had that conversation. Do we have to? <laughs> no. They come voluntarily. I act according to my will. And they act according to their will. I am doing what I want. They are doing what they want. But we're both doing the same thing. Okay? So think about God himself. Calvin in his Institutes points out that God himself does good by necessity, but not by compulsion. God always does good. God never does evil. He cannot do evil. Not because he's forced to do good, 
That's not what's happening, is it? Nobody's forcing God to do good. His very nature abounds with goodness. That's why. So he does good by necessity. He must do good. But he never does it by compulsion. Nobody forces God to do good. So we do his will in the same way. We do it by necessity, but not by compulsion. We're not forced to do it. He does what he wants, and we do what we want. This is getting quite philosophical, isn't it? But we're not here to look at what Calvin said, but what the Bible says. So we're going to look at three case studies to see whether that fits with what we've said so far. So Steve's going to bring us our first reading, our first case study, is in Genesis chapter 50, and we're going to look at Joseph. So Genesis 50, uh, 15 to 21. Okay, so Genesis 50, beginning at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am. For for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Thanks, Steve. So the context for this is that Joseph's brothers are scared that Joseph is going to take revenge on them. His father, Jacob, has died. And now they think, right, Joseph now is going to take his opportunity to get his own back. Because if you remember, his brothers have been very mean to him. They'd sold him uh, into slavery. Uh, They'd done all sorts of nasty things uh, to him. And it was their fault that Joseph was sold as a slave. And it was their jealousy that led them to act in that way. If you remember, he was talking about his dreams all the time and the way that he would be in charge. And that would be bad enough being sold as a slave. But because he'd had to spend those years uh, in Egypt, he'd also ended up spending years of his life in prison that led from that as well. Instead of being Jacob's favourite with a fairly cushy life, he'd had to endure life as a slave and a prisoner. But Joseph sees the hand and the will of God here. They had done what they wanted, hadn't they, with their bad motives. They had meant it for evil, selling him into slavery. But God had also done what he wanted by sending him there to rescue his people. One set of actions, two sets of motives. They're doing what they want to do with bad motives. And God is doing what he wants to do with good motives so that's not to say that God was the author of their evil 
It's not to say that God forced them to do what they did. And he also doesn't stand in the same way behind good actions and bad actions as he directs events through history. When bad actions are there, he permits the actions rather than bringing those things about directly. So think Job, for example, where God grants permission for the devil to afflict Joel. But God doesn't actually afflict Joel, even though Joel, uh, Joel, Job uses that language. God is still in control, but he doesn't directly cause it. And there's an important difference in the way that we see that in God's direction of events. He's not authoring evil, but he's in control over it. But we see here that actually even when bad motives are there, God's will and man's will overlap. They're compatible. They can happen at the same time. Uh, Both can function uh, at one time. So the posh name for this is compatibilism. There's another ism for you. But this idea that it's not incompatible that those things can happen at the same time. And it seems to be what this is teaching. You see, this is more than just foreknowledge of what will happen, isn't it? Because God actually has a purpose in sending Joseph to Egypt in order to rescue his family. He doesn't just know that Joseph will there and sort of think, oh, this is a lucky coincidence. While he's there, I can use him to save his family. God actually directs him there, doesn't he? He directs the action so that Joseph ends up there to rescue his people. So that's Joseph. That's example number one. That seems to fit with what we've been saying. The second example is Pharaoh. And Steve's going to bring us a reading from... Exodus chapter 9. Right, Exodus 9, verse 33. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have held harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Thanks, Steve. So, does Pharaoh here have free will? Well, the Bible here tells us two things. Firstly, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And then secondly, that God also hardens his heart. What does it mean to harden a heart? Well, the the word literally means to strengthen. He strengthens his heart. He sins and he strengthens his heart. That's what it says of Pharaoh. And when God hardens his heart, it's the strengthening of what is already there, if you like. So God doesn't put in there anything that isn't already there. He just lets it have its full force. If you think about it, he doesn't weaken his heart. It's not that he's trying to change something. (laughs) Actually strengthens his heart. He doesn't change it. He sets it firm in the position that it's in. And in doing so, he's not doing anything that Pharaoh hasn't been doing himself all along. 
Pharaoh does this to himself as he sees what God is doing. So he doesn't make Pharaoh a puppet, but he does make him serve his purposes. And God announced to, to Moses that he was going to do this in advance. That's what it alludes to in the passage. It's there so that God would be able to show his glory. It's there so that, as it says at the end of the passage, that you'll have something to pass on to your grandchildren. That people will know that God is, uh, the Lord is God. Could you imagine for a second what the story would have been like if Pharaoh hadn't hardened his heart or if God hadn't hardened Pharaoh's heart? You know, you get the, the big drama, don't you? I don't know if you've seen Prince of Egypt, you know, you've got an amazing scene where Moses comes up to Pharaoh and there's all the music playing and it's building up and it's building up and he says, let my people go. Can you imagine if Pharaoh turned around and said, all right then, off you go. No plagues, no uh, Passover, no parting of the Red Sea. None of that would have happened, would it? Actually, God is directing the action here, but he's using things that are already there. To not let them go is what Pharaoh wants. He doesn't want to let them go. But it also here, in this circumstance, until the time comes, is what God wants too. Pharaoh's motive, again, is bad. It's pride, isn't it? God's motive is his own glory. For his own glory to be shown. Which is good. It's what we need to know that the Lord is God, don't we? We need to be able to see his saving power. And again, this is more than just foreknowledge or even something called contingent knowledge, where God sort of knows what would happen. That if you put Pharaoh in this particular circumstance, he would act in this particular way. That's not what happens, is it? God is actively involved in this. God is not bound by Pharaoh's decisions. God is directing the events. And this is how the Apostle Paul understands it, too. So if you flip over, we won't read it out, but we'll sort of glance Actually, no, we will read out a bit of it. Romans 9. I'll read it to us. You see the page numbers on the screen. It also refers back to this incident with Pharaoh. I'll just read up to verse 18. Look out for the the reference to, to Pharaoh. I am speaking the truth in Christ, this is Paul speaking, I am not lying, but my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, forever blessed. Amen. But it's not as though the word of God has failed with them not coming in. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are, his chil- are children of Abraham, because they are his, um, because not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. But this is what the promise said about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Um, and not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, She was told the older will serve the younger. 
And as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whoever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You see there in that passage, Paul uses people uh, from the Old Testament, Jacob and Esau, to show that God chooses some people, Jacob, but not others, Esau. He shows us that it's not dependent on their works or any foreknowledge of their works because he makes the point that they weren't born, they hadn't done anything yet. That would be a strange point to make if it was actually looking at those works but before they were born. That doesn't seem to work, does it? The point is that it's God's sovereign decision. Now to some that seems unfair and Paul addresses that in verses 14 and 15. They say, is there injustice on God's part? But he points out that it depends not on human will. Let that sink in for a second about what we're talking about. Not on human will, but on God who has mercy. And he backs that up with the example of Pharaoh, whom God hardened. He didn't make Pharaoh bad, if you like. But given the context that everyone is bad and that God is the offended party, he's saying, isn't it God's decision whom he has mercy on? Isn't this God's choice then, who he chooses to forgive? The passage goes on to describe God like a potter and us like clay. God is our maker, and so ultimately is his decision what he does with us. Even the most powerful man in the world at the time, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is just like a clay cup to God. He's his maker. And thinking about it like that, isn't it amazing that God would show mercy to any of us? In light of what we are like before God. But the point here is that God is in control of what's happening. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. But again, he does not change it, so to speak. So it rather fixes it where it already is. God allows Pharaoh's heart to grow strong and sinful in his opposition to God. So that God might bring judgment on him and his people. So that's Pharaoh. That's our second example. Joseph Pharaoh. And then last example... Uh, Probably the toughest, I think, Judas. Uh, So Steve's going to bring us a passage from John chapter 6. We're reading from verse 60 of, uh, of John 6. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offence at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you 
that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, <coughs> Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Thanks, Steve. <coughs> so did Judas have free will? What if uh, Judas had changed his mind? What if Jesus' prophecies about being betrayed by one of the twelve had not happened? I mean, there are even lines about Judas in the Old Testament, aren't they? They get quoted in, in Acts and, and in the Gospels as well. It had been planned so long ago that this is the role that Judas would play. So is it just foreknowledge? Is it just that God knows in advance what's going to happen? Well, foreknowledge can be looked at in two ways. God knowing what will happen and God knowing what would happen. Now, God knows both those things, what will happen and what would happen, because God knows everything, doesn't he? But when we put everything down to his foreknowledge, like Arminius did, we forget that God is actually involved in this world. We see it here in the Gospel uh, of John as God interacts with his people in Jesus. Day by day, for three years, Jesus lives and talks with his disciples, including Judas. He does miracles. He heals people, he preaches. And that's clearly influencing people, isn't it? And their actions and their decisions. And that foreknowledge here is really a choice, isn't it? If, if Jesus is doing these things, it's not that God foresees that he will do them. Because he is God. He's doing them himself. He's choosing what he does. God doesn't merely foresee his own actions. He chooses them. Yeah? So God is involved in the plot. God is making decisions. What does he choose to do? He chooses to allow Judas to betray him. He doesn't just foresee it, he permits it. In fact, at points he seems to possibly encourage Judas to go and do it. You know, what you've got to do, go do it quickly. Now Jesus could have said something, couldn't he? Jesus could have got all 12 disciples, the other 11 disciples, to go sit on Judas through the Passover. Do you know what I mean? Stop him betraying Jesus. There are ways that he could do it just by asking people. But he doesn't. And that's just as much God directing the action as if he'd done the opposite, as if he'd stopped it. God could have stopped this, but he doesn't. Because ultimately it's what he wants. Actually, Jesus needs to go to the cross. God's will and Judas's will are aligning. God does what he wants. Judas does what he wants. It gets a bit more complicated because the Bible also tells you in John 13 verse 2 that the devil is involved. So during supper, when the devil had already... It's on the back of your notice sheets. During supper, when the devil had already uh, put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. The devil's here in the mix as well. Don't have too much time to look at that. But Judas is doing what he wants to do. 
God is doing what he wants to do, and the devil is doing what he wants to do, all in one set of actions. So could Judas not do this? No, I don't think Judas could not do this. It was a necessity. But Judas does this voluntarily. He chooses to do it. He's responsible for his own actions. The Bible even tells you his motives. He wants money. He's always sort of talking about Jesus and giving away too much, or he's the one who holds the money back. He wanted to betray Jesus. He did what he wanted to do. The Gospels make that clear. He had his motives, God had his, and the devil had his, all in one set of actions. So it shows us that God's will and our will are compatible, even if there's necessity in what we do. So what does that mean bringing it all together? Well, do we decide our destiny as independent, sovereign individuals? The Bible's answer to that is no. That sovereignty belongs to God alone. But are we able to do what we want to do and make decisions? Yes. Yes, we can. We can do what we want. And the amazing thing is that when we become a Christian, God changes our wills. God does actually step in. But what he does is changes what we want. So that we no longer desire in our inner being to do evil, but to please God instead. God does step in and change our hearts rather than harden them. The Bible talks about it as taking out our hearts of stone and giving us hearts of flesh. He restores us to being truly human without the necessity of doing evil. This is God acting to give us what we really want, even if we don't know that's what we really want. He changes our very wills to make us desire and want him. And from that point on, we can choose good in a way that we didn't before. And the first thing that we always do in that state is that we turn to Christ. That's what happens when God changes our will. We turn to Christ. God brings us from death to life. And our immediate reaction is to understand we must turn to Christ. Now, we call this Calvinism, uh, what we've been talking about. Of all the isms, that's the closest to what the Bible presents. But we could call it Augustinianism, because that's what Augustine taught. We could call it Lutherism or Whitfieldism. I'll be one, wouldn't it? I don't give a hoot if Calvin believed it. I disagree with him on other things. But on this, he was right. God is both sovereign and we are responsible for our actions because we do them voluntarily. We do what we want. But this also means in this system that all the glory goes to God. Because we could do nothing. God must provide it all. It must be revealed to us, as we saw this morning, like little children. Not with our own understanding, but God doing it. And that also means that this is a leveller. It makes us all equal in this system, which none of the other systems, I think, really do. Um, It's not like that God is looking forward to our good works and then choosing us because of that. It's not that God is looking forward to our clever decision to choose Christ. It's not even that God is looking forward to our faith. Because those are really just merit by the back door. They're sort of merit in advance, aren't they? What we're taught is that all of us are dead and need resurrection. Nobody deserves it. Not a single one of us. So that it just entirely depends on the mercy of God. 
And that's where Paul gets to in Romans after he's finished Romans 11. That actually God has given us all over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on us. And this is how Paul finishes that. It doesn't lead him to despair. It leads him to praise. This is how he finishes that section. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I know a few people are away and they wanted to listen in. I should say, obviously this is something that has been discussed for <laughs> like thousands of years. So if you didn't get it all this evening, please don't worry. Because actually this is quite a big topic. And it will take a lot of thinking about, and the implications also take a lot of thinking about as well. And also, caveat, I can't promise I'll be able to answer your question, but I'll give it a go. I've got a yeah. question. Um, regarding hyper-Calvinism, mm-hmm. okay, are there any, like, hyper-Calvinists of note, you know, or, or just a bit of a sort of a parody, or, you know, um, you know who's, who's really argued for the position where we don't need to evangelise because... It's an irresistible choice God makes, God makes, and nothing mm. we can do or should do will make will change that. And I've got a supplementary. Okay. Um, it's the, uh, the kind of exclusive brethren. Is like yeah. a, this might be a naive question. Is there a touch of that about mm. them, perhaps? Because he goes into the meeting mm. room and you've got to write to the trustees somewhere to find out where the meeting is. It's mm. hidden away, you know, and it's very, you know, inconspicuous. Try and make themselves as unwelcome as possible to. Outsiders. Yeah. Okay, I'll take those uh, one at a time. So first one, are there any hyper-Calvinists of note? Well, I mean, Spurgeon wrote against the hyper-Calvinists. That was one of the things that he uh, did. So obviously people around in his day. I think the interesting thing with hyper-Calvinism is that um, it, it's a, it is a word that gets sort of batted around at people often. You know, oh, this person is a hyper-Calvinist when actually they're, they're just a Calvinist. And it gets sort of back around the other way as well, when sometimes people think that hyper-Calvinism is Calvinism, that somehow there's no responsibility for man. But in terms of notables, I can't, I can't think of any that you would know. And like I say, their movements are often short-lived. Because John Gill. John Gill. John Gill. There you go, John Gill. We have to go and look that up now. When was that? 1700. <laughs> I know when the Hudson Tower wants to go to China, somebody's having to sit down during mine if God wants to save them, it. he'll save them. Or yeah, if God wants to convert the heathen, I think he said yeah. um, he will do it as he wills. There are hints of it there, aren't there? And the danger is actually with our Calvinist convictions that we go down the same line. Um, there is a comfort in knowing that God is in control of people's eternal destinies. But we shouldn't take that then as a, a license then not to tell people. Actually, Calvinism is what makes evangelism possible, really, rather than what makes it something that we shouldn't do. If God is not at work, then we can't save anybody, can we? Um, but there is a danger sometimes we think, oh, yeah, you know, well, God, God's in control. You know, he'll do it. I don't need to tell people. And I think it's interesting. It's a bit like the book of Romans. People are always looking for excuses either to sin or to not tell the gospel. And I think that can be one of them. God's control, actually, in Romans, they try and use that as an excuse to sin. Well, who can resist God's will then? I may as well just do what I like, because God's in control, he's doing it. Or may as well not evangelise, because God's in control. But actually, no, it should be a spur to evangelism. 
Um, so we, you know, we should, we should be serious about it. If God has chosen people, we need to go and tell them the gospel so they can believe. How will they hear without us preaching it to them? It still, still counts. It's not, <laughs> it's not as though that doesn't apply. Um, that's why I love the fact that Romans 10 is after Romans 9. If you think about it, that actually the spur to go and tell people. I said that once at a meeting. People, the profound thing is that Romans 10 is after Romans 9. Oh, you can count. Well done. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so uh, uh, that was the first bit of hyper-Calvinist of note. Uh, second one was about exclusive brethren. Um, so I don't know, I, I don't claim to be an expert on exclusive brethren, but it does seem to be that there are common themes there, doesn't it? Um, this idea of um, uh, not wanting to, to tell people the gospel, not wanting them to hear, which is tragic, isn't it? Um, whatever your theology that produces that, it must be wrong. Because God wants people to hear the gospel. Um, but it does sound pretty similar. Interesting. I, I don't think they do share a lot of common uh, theology there, but it is interesting they come to common conclusions, isn't it? Which again excuses them from evangelism. Yeah. Is Arminianism dangerous? Is Arminianism dangerous? I think Arminianism is depressing. Whether I'd say it's dangerous. I think if you believe that people's fates lie in your hands in a way that they're not in God's hands, if it is all about convincing people to believe the gospel and that you can change their hearts, then that's going to make you very depressed. Because actually, you're going to think it's all your fault if your friends don't, you know, if your family don't believe, that's your fault. You did it. It's going to make you very insecure. Arminians believe, along with the idea you can choose God, you can choose later on not to believe in God. So you can never be certain of your salvation. You can never be certain that you're going to heaven. So actually, you can't have assurance. You've got this sort of guilt of um, uh, of your friends and family while it's on you. I think there's a danger of pride as well. If it is your achievement, if you like, if, oh yes, I've had faith. That was my clever decision. There's a danger that you give glory to yourself. And that actually then you start to look down on other people. You know, well, why couldn't they just believe? But if you know that it's impossible, as we were hearing last week, you know, impossible for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle, you remember that all of us are in the same boat. None of us could do it. Um, so I think there is the danger of pride in Arminianism. Pride or despair, one or the other, I think, is, is probably where it goes. So in that case, it is dangerous to your soul, really. It, it, it's... it's putting you in a, a position where you sin. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> no one likes to choose to ask a question. <laughs> well, we'll take it that uh, God has willed that we won't. Uh, so we'll finish with a last one that reminds us that it is God at work. And... Uh, 